0: Welcome, everyone. We're here at WSQF 94.5. Yours truly, Mac on the Rock. A little bit humbled because my president will not be my president and someone else's president will be president. We have a wonderful meeting today with a very intelligent person. Well, it's actually two intelligent people. One people, you know, One's an attorney, so I can't admit they're intelligent. But
1: hey, the CDC said that we have priority for the vaccine.
0: Attorneys have priority <laughs> for the vaccine. Let me put you in touch with our guest. What's our guest's name again?
1: Peter Wood. He's president of the National Association of Scholars, a very learned organization. He's been a conservative scholar for over 10 years, which is very amazing. He'll have to explain that to us. And this year he wrote 1620, a critical response to the New York Times 1619 Project.
0: So introduce yourself. Peter. Peter, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Fantastic. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for calling, Peter.
0: I'm I'm yours truly, Mac, and I think you under know you know Victorious Vidal. He's still wearing his "Make America Great Again" hat.
1: Absolutely, that that nothing to do with who's president.
0: And we're still, and I'm still deplorable. So uh, have at it, Ed. Okay,
1: Peter. Thank you very much. Um, we I've been following your work over the years, and this year I think I see you uh, wrote a book uh, contrary to the New York Times uh, 1619 Project, which I think has become very uh, very timely. And uh, I've, I've actually read the whole book, so I could ask you a few questions, but I would like to give you, the, uh, these interviews are really uh, focused on the, the caller, and our, our listeners want to hear your view. Yeah, it's, and more, w-
0: it's more of a conversation we have with you. More yeah, than it's an
1: informal, um, and it's all being taped, so you can get the, the tape later. And uh, if I look at, you know, maybe you can tell us how you got into this uh, business and how you came to write a book like this.
2: Well, I got into this business. Um, I'm an anthropologist by training. And I taught anthropology at Boston University for many years, and.
1: I'm a mother of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh,
2: exactly, uh, she came a bit after me, okay. but um, uh, I, I can't say I'm very proud of uh, some of the alumni. But. Yep. Um, I was uh, in the administration there, too, under a man named John Silber, who was a pretty well-known conservative figure, and uh, from there I went to a a Christian college in New York called the King's College as its provost for a few years.
1: Oh, sure. Sure, we know that. We lived in Manhattan. Yeah, good.
2: Yeah. So I, I went from there to the National Association of Scholars, so... I'm no longer in the classroom. I'm full-time as the president of the National Association of Scholars. Uh, I, I've been a conservative scholar, I would say, all my life, not uh, just for the last 10 years. But okay. In the last 10 years, I've been able to uh, quite openly espouse my views and uh, gather around me thousands of other mm-hmm. uh, academics who are of
1: like mind. Thousands?! Uh, yeah. Of we like, uh, like minds? Are you no. sure? Are you sure? It's got to be do, like
0: 200 of like minds.
1: Yeah, three or four, I would have said.
2: <laughs> well, there's more uh, academics than you might think who dissent from the ruling orthodoxies of the left. <laughs> okay. You,
0: mean, you and, mean from the, the Neanderthal man?
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, we provide uh, a, a safe space for them, I guess is what okay. you call it these days. So there are about 3,600 of us. Okay. And... And uh, that's that's what I do. We do uh, in-depth research on things, but we mm-hmm. jump into the controversies that others are afraid to touch. And uh,
1: how did you get into this one? How did you get into this? How did you decide to take on the New York Times and their 1619 project?
2: Well, that's a pretty direct one. I. I get the New York Times, I'm ashamed to say.
1: Boo! Uh, so my we wife and my I, so, uh, we lived in Scarsdale, New York, and we canceled it on after 9-11, when they no. had the story about uh, Bill Ayers saying he hadn't blown up enough buildings. So.
2: Right. Well, there are a million reasons to cancel the New York Times, but <laughs> if you're in my world of uh, fighting the political correct noose around our necks, uh, yep. knowing what's in the Times is important. So I got up on the morning of uh, August uh, 18th, 2019, and the Times that day had a special supplement, an issue of its magazine devoted to a claim that it was going to tell American history correctly for the very first time. And that uh, meant that America was founded, according to the Times, by the arrival in Virginia in 1619, 400 years earlier, of a slave bringing, uh, a ship bringing slaves from Africa. Mm -hmm. Uh, I read this 100-page supplement then and there, and it was just so completely full of falsehoods that I went into work the next day and got my staff together and said, we've got to do something to respond to this. Get the historians who know the history on record, pointing out what's wrong here, and ideally telling a, a different and better story of our American past, one grounded in the actual history.
1: That's great. So, that's what we did. All right. So let me go over on page 68 of your book. I'm going to go and read for our audience um, the what you list as the five doubtful claims that the new york times supplement made and then i'm going to let you go through and uh and respond to each of them so for our audience uh we're we're all here in key biscayne sunny south florida
0: wsqf
1: 94.5 mm-hmm. fm in key biscayne
0: and wait, stop interrupting me oh. as i was saying the live stream wsqfradio.com yep hear us worldwide on the live stream as well as on your car on 94.5
1: yep Okay, so the first uh, assertion that the New York Times made was that the American Revolution was fought to protect American slave owners from the threat of abolition by the British government. Now, what do you say to that? Because I remember reading, I read a a review of a book called 1774 in the Wall Street Journal, and it was a a historian who reviewed this, this period of 1774 to 76, and she didn't once mention the the idea that the colonists thought that the British were gonna abolish slavery. What do you, what do you say to that? I would say that we know why the
2: American Revolution was fought. We have a handy document called the Declaration of Independence, mm-hmm. which lays out about thirty reasons why the American colonists should reject the rule of King George. And that list does not include anything about the threat that the British were going to abolish slavery. There's a very clear reason for that, which is the British never threatened to do that thing. <laughs> yeah. The British were the world's biggest slave traders at that point in history. Right. They were profiting admirably from bringing uh, slaves across the Atlantic to the Caribbean and to North America. In fact, the complaint that colonists were making was that the British were bringing too many slaves. Yeah, to lowering
0: America. the price. <laughs>
2: yep. So on... Um, this thing just never happened. The Times made that up out of thin air. Oh, how surprising. Well, yeah, you know, If you want to find any evidence for it, they have to twist two historical facts. And, I mean, I, if I can go into that. Sure, was sure. The, 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 uh, there was a, a thing called the Somerset decision in mm-hmm. England a few years earlier in which a English court decided that slavery did not exist under common law in England itself. So it was perfectly fine for the English to trade slaves abroad, but there wouldn't be any slavery in England. So you could look at the Somerset decision and say, well, if they did it there, they could do it here. Now, nobody thought that was going to happen. The the, uh, American newspapers covered the Somerset decision, uh, so we know what Americans were thinking about it, and we know that this was just not ever an issue for Americans. The the other thing that bears on this was that uh, after the American Revolution had begun, one of the uh, British generals issued a uh, uh, an order saying that the slaves of the rebels could... Uh, emancipate themselves and come over and fight for the British, and they mm-hmm. would be given freedom. And that decision lasted about two months or so. Uh, it had some effect on slaves in Virginia. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't the cause of the war. This was a uh, military tactic right. used by the British at one point, and it didn't really work.
1: I think they tried that again during the War of 1812 and did get some recruits when they invaded Maryland. Um, but yeah, I, I agree, it wasn't a big deal. But that certainly wasn't part of the revolution. But the New York Times oh, yeah. went ahead and just made this up, is that right? They made it
2: up, they put it before their own fact checker, mm-hmm. and the fact checker told them that's flat wrong, don't right. say that, and they rejected her counsel <laughs> and went ahead and said it. So...
1: Well, there so we I go.
2: Say in that case, it's just not a mistake, that's a lie.
1: Yeah. That's the way it is. All right. Well, that's another reason for me to not read the New York Times. But anyway, let me go on to the second point they make, which has resulted in a statue being torn down. Lincoln was a racist whose primary intent was to keep blacks and whites separate. Now, let me just add a little bit. During this uh, shutdown, even though it wasn't as bad in, in Florida, I had a chance to read a biography of Lincoln. And I can assure you from that and from other readings that. He, did, he was not a racist, like some of the people of his time. He did not think blacks were inferior uh, biologically or raci- or by race, But he, although he did think that they were of different culture, different cultural level. How do you read that, that Lincoln was a racist, and some statutes of Lincoln are being taken down?
2: Well, the claim in this case is made by the main author-editor of the New York Times 1619 project named Nicole Hannah-Jones. Mm-hmm. And what she rests on is a meeting in the White House that Lincoln had with a delegation of uh, black Washingtonians. Mm -hmm. This was uh, right before the Battle of Antietam. Mm -hmm. The war was not going well for the North at that point. And uh, Lincoln, at this meeting, uh, raised the idea that um, the freed slaves, from whatever uh, victories Mm -hmm. the North would have, would be given the opportunity to uh, emigrate to a colony abroad, either in Haiti or Panama. Mm -hmm. Um, The delegation of uh, black leaders that he presented this to thought it over, and they thought it was a good idea, and they went back and uh, uh, set it up as an option. It turned out in Lincoln changed his mind about this and a few yep. months later, after the Battle of Antietam, and the uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was forthcoming, and yep. it came out in two forms, but ultimately in January it was mm-hmm. official, and uh, this idea of uh, offering refuge to emancipated slaves abroad just fell apart. The few right. that left were all that ever came of it. Um, But Nicole Hannah-Jones portrays this as the revelation of what Lincoln was really thinking. He Mm. was uh, prosecuting the Civil War because his ultimate aim was to rid North America of black people. Uh, There is just nothing to support that. She does go on a cherry-picking expedition through Lincoln's speeches earlier in his career, in which he was trying to win support for uh, the propositions of preventing the spread of slavery, and picks out phrases here and there, one of them being in a, uh, a, a tribute to uh, Henry Clay, mm-hmm. which makes—well, in any case, we're, we're left here with a, a kind of determined campaign mm-hmm. to take one of the most enlightened men in American history and portray him as a bigot. Yep. Uh, the reason Nicole Hannah Jones wants to do that is, uh, and I think this comes up later in the list you're looking at, is she wants to present uh, American history through a lens in which n- there are no good white people.
1: Right. Well, is that is the. This seems the to be the big goal. <laughs> right. right. Well, when I was an undergrad at the University of Chicago, I had John Hope Franklin as a professor, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the I had some points of uh, disagreement with him, and. One of them was when I pointed out to him that Lincoln had said, if I could preserve the Union without freeing a single slave, I would do it. And so Lincoln was not an abolitionist like Seward was. And that's right. why, why Lincoln was able to win the Republican nomination uh, in 1860 and Seward lost. He, Lincoln won on the third uh, round. So that, mm-hmm. was, that was where the Republican Party stood. They wanted to contain slavery and preserve the Union they did not necessarily want to abolish it but as the war went on I think Lincoln saw that first it was a matter of a military measure uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and then at the end of his of his life he didn't know it but he was uh, the guy who lobbied the Congress to for the uh, amendment to free the slaves so how can you and, and a guy like Frederick Douglass who started out being kind of skeptical of Lincoln came along to really become a a close friend because he saw that Lincoln was not a racist and was you know really looking for a a new birth of freedom as Lincoln himself put it. Would you agree with that?
2: I I agree with that entirely. I think that that captures who Lincoln was and why he's important.
1: Yep 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 all right and but but uh, a high school in San Francisco was just uh, going to be renamed because it was the Abraham Lincoln High School. So uh, this uh, project is getting some speed in some cities, San Francisco, Chicago, and other places. So your book is very timely. Now let me look at the third claim that you have here. Uh, it says, for the most part, black Americans fought back alone. That's ridiculous. In Haiti, the African slaves freed themselves. In America, the Union Army... <laughs> With uh, Grant and Sherman and Admiral Farragut, they had something to do with freeing the slaves. And there was an abolition movement started around 1830 by uh, uh, Garrison, William Garrison. Uh, And in fact, after the after the Revolution, there were some strong uh, abolition manumission movements. They called them. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was active in that movement in New York. Uh, So how can you say that black folks fought alone?
2: Well, that's another absurdity. The, uh, the abolitionists can be traced back to the, well before the Revolution. There were m- movements like the Quakers who were opposed to slavery right. from the beginning. Yep. We are left with a record in which almost all the opposition to slavery in its first 150 years in this country was opposition-stimulated, organized, Promoted by white abolitionists, right? Um, but that's and of course the men who served in the Union Army were in um, effect uh, an army fighting against Absolutely. slavery for yep. the Union. Yep. And th- then the, the NAACP was founded by a group of white men, and right. The uh, the American Civil Rights Movement was certainly a multiracial affair, uh, with Tens of thousands of white people ardently involved with it.
1: Yeah, so it and the, the claim
2: that it's for the most part fought alone. Yeah, is just another one of these audacious lies. It's well, just not held up by history.
1: The battle hymn of the republic says, "As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free." Mm-hmm. And the soldiers marching under Grant in Virginia would—they didn't have dog tags in those days. So they would put their names at the back uh, and and not scotch tape, but I guess they would pin them to the back of their uniform so they could be identified after they were killed.
0: It's better than saying Velcro.
1: Yeah, there was no Velcro back then, right. So, I mean, these are people, they knew what they were doing.
0: Now, uh, I need to interrupt because I want the audience to know what your general thesis was in terms of uh, what do you are attempting to do with your book. And, and I guess you could do that through uh, Ed Vidal's uh, questioning, mm-hmm. but let the audience know what is it you attempted to do when you wrote the book? I have not read the book, so I need to ask. I'm just like another audience member. And uh, please elaborate that so that those who are listening to us can understand uh, where you were going with your book.
2: The book is doing two things. One, it is attempting to bring to a broader audience the danger of a, a fake history, which is aggravating racial tensions and ultimately giving rise to a movement of uh, deep division in this country and using the schools for that purpose. So the first task of the book is to discredit a bad idea. The second task is to replace it with a better idea. And there I um, titled the book 1620. That's a reference to the Mayflower Compact signed in November of 1620, which was the first of you could think of it as an early draft of the Declaration of Independence. It sets out a pattern for how a self-governing, free community can uh, control itself under the rule of law through elections and through respect for the differences within a community.
1: Fair elections, so, right? I'm sorry? Fair, fair, elections. fair elections. Fair elections, Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh,
2: unlike the elections that we have grown used to in the last... Uh, yep
1: year or so. Yeah, yep, yep.
0: We, yeah, we're being told to accept yeah, these, well, these we'll, guidelines. Yep,
1: that's another, we'll have to have them call for that. Well, let me go uh, go on to these uh, four num- points number four and five, because number four is pretty uh, outrageous. It says plantation slavery was the foundation of American capitalism. I think it's just the opposite. You know, plantation is a backward and, and, and coerced labor is a backward way of running a business. What do you say to that?
2: Well, it's the most laughable absurdity of all, I think, in this uh, collection of ideas. The, the notion here is that uh, plantation slavery, because it was so profitable to the plantation owners, meant that they had a lot of capital and they could invest, and therefore, uh, since they were rich and making investments, they were the ultimate model of American prosperity and capitalism. Uh, Slaves could be mortgaged the way property could, so they could raise money that way. Uh, They needed elaborate uh, accounting mechanisms to take account of how much work each slave was doing. So all of this is said to be the low-road capitalism that America developed, and the exploitative practices of our pre-market system are are all to be traced to uh, chattel slavery, on the plantations of the uh, cotton growing regions of the South. That's oh. what the Times says. Uh, the truth of the matter is that, uh, as many observers noted, the existence of slavery in the South impoverished the region right. for generations. That, uh, Not the, only that, our but. Our famous, most famous visitor, uh, Tocqueville, right. w- went down the Ohio River, looked left, and saw Kentucky as a desolate area looked right over at Ohio and saw prospering communities all over the place, yeah. he understood immediately that this was the effect of slavery.
1: Part of the reason Abraham Lincoln's father left Kentucky was because the land was starting to be uh, gathered up for bigger plantations, uh, land titles were not as safe as they were in the Northwest Front Territory, so he moved to Indiana, and then Lincoln, uh, once he left his parents' home... Uh, went to Illinois. So there was more opportunity in the free states.
2: Absolutely. So the idea that our uh, national prosperity was built on slavery is just false. Uh, The impoverishing of a whole region of the country by Mm -hmm. reliance on slave labor rather than free labor uh, was a a great tragedy, not only for the slaves, but for everybody else
1: it really held American capitalism back to have this uh, coerced labor. They're never as productive, as innovative. In fact, I think a big part of the reason why the Republican Party and the Free Soil Movement arose is that the uh, white immigrants were afraid that they were going to be enslaved or or have to compete with black uh, uh, slave labor, uh, certainly out in the West, uh, in Illinois and and Wisconsin. And uh, they just, you know... they, they didn't want to be subjected to that kind of coerced labor. So to think that that is some kind of... In fact, part of the reason the North won the war is that it had more. It was a more productive place because it had free labor.
2: Right. It was hugely more productive, and yeah. uh, the capital that the South did manage to uh, raise was often invested in the North. Right. That's where the, the real profits could be had. Right.
0: Now, is there any truth to be told about the increase in slavery... Uh, that occurred directly after the invention of the cotton gin, that motivated more slavery than than before. Correct, which is pretty much yeah, later it, in our American history. It
1: made it more profitable. Yeah,
2: right. The cotton gin is invented. I think it's the year uh, 1793. Yep. Whitney. Yep. And uh, it is a uh, an invention which enables uh, cotton to be processed much much faster, and with that it opened up the opportunity to turn cotton production from a relatively minor crop to the major and dominant crop through uh, the whole region of the south.
1: Yep, But, you know, this cotton could be raised uh, productively with volunteer labor or paid labor, as what happened in India and also in Egypt. So you didn't need slavery to uh, have a cotton uh, plantation.
2: Right. Well, that was one of the ways in which the uh, promoters of slavery or its defenders in the South miscalculated. Uh, they talked of King Cotton right. and the idea that uh, the British would come to their aid because they couldn't get cotton anywhere else. Well, the British said, oh, can't get it from the South. We'll grow it in Egypt and India. And well, they did, and it was successful. Well,
1: actually, you, and in addition to that, uh, the British Prime Minister was Lord Palmerston, who was a real cynic and real politic guy, and he did not aid the Confederacy because he could not have gone back, either to the British public, including the newspapers, or to Queen Victoria, and say that he was aiding a slave republic against a free republic. That was another way.
0: Yeah, to make they a big... couldn't
1: have done that, and Palmerston would have done anything. He had, he was a totally, uh, you know, he said He's England a total has Joe
0: Biden. Is that what you're no, saying?
1: no, no. He was not a crook. He was. He said, "England has no uh, friends, only interests," and so he would have done it if he could have. But the the British government, the British people, the British Queen would not have allowed him to do that. So that's another way in which, you know, the the, the blacks were not fighting alone. There were lots of people. Who were constrained by their Christianity. Uh, okay, queen Victoria. Here's
0: one I put out there for the both of you to reply to. Mm-hmm. What conflict does a book like 1493 have to have in this instance where it say it states that african slaves were brought to the new world simply because they could overcome diseases
1: well i think the I, well peter you can tell us but i think the african slaves were more resistant than the american indians uh in in the caribbean and uh, in mexico but, and, in and, brazil
0: and the indentured servitude well those of white yeah. guys from uh, ireland scotland yep so could you answer that since you're an anthropologist uh does that hold water that that the statements made in the book were true that the real motivation to bring African slaves were resiliency? They were hardier, yeah. Hard, hardier yeah. Uh, human beings to survive the nasty yeah, diseases Yeah, because 90% in the percent
1: of the Indians in the Caribbean basin died from uh, smallpox and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, so what validity is that argument? Uh, does that hold water or it doesn't? Well, I
2: think mean, it's completely true that uh, the... Indian population of both South America and North America were not immune to European diseases there were rampant epidemics and they were not easily coerced into slavery the um, uh, the Portuguese and the Spanish mm-hmm. found fairly early on that uh, the Africans made better slaves they also made better slave drivers usually the uh, the slaves were uh, being controlled by other Africans who had been brought over. Um, So, you know, it was a system that survived because it worked. Uh, It worked mainly in the tropical areas where uh, black resistance to the diseases was higher, but they also weren't really worried about um, mortality rates. They would bring over huge numbers of people, and if many of them died, they just went and got more.
1: But what one of the interests? Go ahead.
2: I, the one of the pieces of this, I think, that really matters is that slavery was practiced on a uh, gigantic scale in Latin America. Right. It barely grazed the surface of North America. Right. I mean, and, and in North
1: America, North America is probably the only slave society, the South, since Roman times that we know of, where the Uh, a slave population actually survived and increased without adding more slaves. Because after 1808, there were no slaves brought in, and the slave population grew. Whereas in the Caribbean—by the way, both of us are Cuban-Americans, so we know about the Caribbean. Wait,
0: wait, 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 wait. You're Cuban-American.
1: Okay.
0: (laughs) I'm American-Cuban.
1: Yes, but we know the Caribbean. So
0: I'm, I'm kind of cracker like Katrina, man. All right, I was born here in the states.
1: But but in Brazil, they had to keep bringing slaves over because they were dying. I'm I mean, am
0: brown, they... but you know, I'm still cracker. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm brown. You know, I'm So Floridian. that's that's it.
1: <laughs> okay, so let me go Jeez. back to the let me go back to the to your final fifth point, which I think goes back to what, why Manny asked you, uh, what is the point of this book? And it the fifth point is that the America's history is best understood as a struggle. By American blacks against white supremacy. Now that is a huge charge and it's charged with all sorts of political implications. But what do you how do you see that? How do how do they come to that conclusion? I guess if everything else that they said is true, then you might think number five is true. What do you think? How do you come to that? Well, I don't think it's
2: so much a conclusion as the starting premise that okay. everything else was being lined up to uh, support the premise. Um That white supremacy existed, and it was an integral part of slavery, I think, is an undeniable fact Mm that what's contentious here is the notion that the whole country was designed as a system of white supremacy, and that nothing else actually happened, Mm -hmm. which is to write out of existence the notion that America was a place that people came to to seek freedoms of various Mm -hmm. sorts, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of movement. Um, That uh, pursuit of freedom or liberty under law, Mm -hmm. the pursuit of equality, the the two founding ideals that most strongly get enunciated in the Declaration of Independence, those things are now pushed out of the way in Mm -hmm. favor of the idea that everything was about white supremacy, Mm -hmm. and that's why these radical reinterpretations of the American Revolution, the Civil War, the American economy, but it goes on. Every aspect of American life you can think of, it's it's literature, it's music, uh, our religious practices, our uh, educational endeavors, through the lens of the 1619 Project, are all seen as efforts to... Either advance white supremacy or enforce it in a manner that keeps everybody subordinate to it.
1: Um, no, yeah. Now, well, go ahead. You
2: know, you can take up that idea and, and bat it around all day, but it doesn't make it true. And and it is, though, the uh, justification for things like the riots in Minneapolis and Kenosha and Portland mm-hmm. and uh, Philadelphia and go on and on.
1: By the way, in Kenosha, uh, this week, it wasn't widely reported the county prosecutor decided not to charge the officer who shot so that means that he considered it was self-defense so all oh, those riots were for nothing
0: oh, they, were, they, were for, they were for
1: something yeah they were to get out the vote
0: yeah, yeah absolutely
1: all right so so let, let me ask you then um, it, it this is not the New York Times didn't start writing history last year or, or two years ago so what about other historians of America uh, I know you, you mentioned Gordon Wood, Sean uh, Weilitz and uh, McPherson from Princeton. These are excellent historians. They don't agree with them, but what about a guy like, let me give you two names, Howard Zinn and John Hope Franklin, who wrote uh, a book on the black experience in America. Was Franklin this negative about America? No, he he wasn't. Uh, well, you've, you've had him as a teacher, yep. but
2: uh, he, he is uh, I think a really good historian, mm-hmm. one who took uh, great pains in writing history to include the African-American experience, the Black experience, but he included it. He didn't erase everything else and say, this is all there is, or this is the most important thing. And I think that's, that's the right move to make. That is, we, we should be telling our history Warts and all, and it right. should include the tragic episodes as well as the, the great things that have happened. Um, and John Hope Franklin is an exemplar of writing that kind of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, as to Howard Zinn, um, my goodness, uh, this is for those who don't re- immediately recognize the name. He's the Boston University professor uh, who. Um, in his day, wrote a book titled *A People's History of the United States*, and that people's history is written from a avowedly communist perspective.
0: Uh, I'm so happy you use that word,
2: the American communist party. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, I'm so happy you use that word because here in South Florida, that means something.
2: Yeah, well, as it should, uh, Zinn was a shameless uh, promoter of. Uh, what we used to be able to call anti-Americanism, and I still call it that, uh, it, it's a, he hated this country, he wanted to bring it down, and um, his book was meant to be a contribution to that. It succeeded wildly beyond his own expectations, um, and that became, and I think it still is, the single most popular
1: history textbook in American schools.
0: Yeah. And how yeah. so come knowing well, wait, but, all over the
1: place? But last year we had, there was another book uh, by um, McCrory. What, what was it? I forgot. Uh, <laughs> he was a guest here. He, he called in. Uh, he, he has written, uh, and I forgot the name, I'm um, at my age. Uh, uh, we
0: uh, we forgot. Far, but there's a, there was a book
1: uh, that also, also published by Encounter Books uh, last year, Land of Hope. He was going to come on a book tour, but then the uh, virus wiped out all the book tours here in South Florida. But uh, there are there are other books that are competing with Zinn, and I think your book is certainly uh, going to be part of that uh, uh, counterattack, a uh, cultural counterattack, because it's amazing. It's it meant to be that. I will say about um, the Zinn book
2: is that it prepared the way for the 1619 Project, right? and the Zinn Folks have their own uh, organization that is dedicated to promoting Zinn's book as a textbook, and they instantly adopted the 1619 Project as a valid uh, uh, appendix to Zinn. So they're connected.
0: So, so basically, uh, these books and your counter book per se, what uh, what will this materialize in? I mean. People like me and and I won't really speak for Ed, but people like me who have been very involved in reinventing the school system here in my community, I, you know, I went head to head with the fourth largest school district here, which is Miami-Dade County Public Schools. What are we going to do about these textbooks to get rid of these communist-infused textbooks that are teaching our kids to hate America? I mean, what is it? The total outcome? Can't we like have a quest to get rid of the the, the present-day? public school textbooks, especially the ones that teach history?
2: Yeah. Uh, You can and you should. Um, There are ways of doing it. Uh, That is, uh, you get people elected to the local school board who establish real intellectual standards for what can be used as a textbook. You get state boards of education to similarly adopt the guidelines that control textbook choice. The real problem, I think, arises from the radicalized history teacher. I don't know how many of the teachers are so radicalized, but some All of them. are because they've
1: been <laughs> adopting book. Which ones aren't? You know. Well, uh, what but, about the parents uh, saying, you know, we don't want our kids reading this book?
0: Put them in charge, Ed. I told you that many yep, times. Yep, yep, yep. I'm part of the put them Both. in charge movement.
1: Right. The,
2: the, the parents really have to be willing to come forward. I know... A lot of parents feel that it's risky to do so. I yep. stick my neck out. My child is going to be mistreated by right. teachers.
1: Well, uh, yeah. We, we had that happen. happen. We, in Scars, we were in the Scarsdale School District, and there was a fight about getting rid of the advanced placement courses and so on. And the lady who led the fight against, and she eventually lost, uh, she uh, moved to uh, Chappaqua, Chappaqua where, where Hillary hung out, uh, because <laughs> her kids were being harassed in school. Right. Right. Well, by, the teachers. by uh, the, the teachers
2: like that, by the teachers. Are, yeah. Teachers are uh, not the kinds of teachers I grew up with anyway. Right, yeah. um, I never had any idea what their politics might be. Right. That, they, no,
0: it's far worse than that. I mean, you guys talk about uh, a kind of a uh, an experience that was arm lengths to you all. I'm talking about your experience in Scarsdale. Uh, imagine me with a fifth grader going yeah. head-to-head with these people. and uh, Right here
1: in Key Biscayne.
0: Right here in affluent in Key of Latin Americans. And I fired the first ever direct ballot parent trigger law. And we're the only state that has a direct ballot parent trigger law. And, man, 107 <laughs> parents stormed the cafeteria th- demanding I resign as PTA president. They didn't back you up. They didn't. and um, That's the way we it had goes. A, we had an A school, so I wasn't really complaining about what they claimed was a good school. I was complaining about the safe schoolhouse. And I wanted it knocked down because mm-hmm. it had mercury and asbestos. And can you believe it? The man and I resigned. They voted 89 to 3 to have me resign. Ten people in protest. Leave the building. But later on, the building was renovated. And now uh, two teachers have, uh, yeah. seven teachers are diagnosed with the cancers. And two have died. Two parents have died. Yeah. And I'm in this little town. And it's what motivated me to build this radio station because yep. I lost my freedom of speech.
1: Well, we definitely need more parental control over the whole uh, school choice. No, the money. Yeah, and the money, right? The
0: administration money of the school. All right. So I found I
1: it. The book is uh, by Wilfred McCloy and he is a McClay, Wilfred McClay, and he is a professor at the University of Oklahoma. It's called "Land of Hope: The Great American Story." So you can get that on Amazon. It's also published by Encounter Books, which is the publisher of your book. They're doing yeah, a lot fun. of yeah.
2: I, I know uh, Bill McClay very well, okay. and uh, it, it, it is an excellent textbook. I think it should be more widely adopted, and working to have that. Uh, so his, um, his attempt here is to provide a textbook that tells a real history, and you wouldn't think that right. would be so hard to do, but it's been uh, an uphill battle to get things like this.
0: Now, when you mean real history, history you battle. mean true history in concert history
1: yeah <laughs> the way it worked okay well let, let me uh go to this issue of uh on I'm I'm, I'm page 222 you really go straight to the new york times and their decision to launch this project uh so let me let me add, go over some of those points so our audience can see it and you can you can comment on it um first of all you said they were pleasing an angry staff it's funny that we have all these uh, staff members that are more radical, even than the editors, and in the New York mm-hmm. Times case, they forced one of the editors to resign. Uh, was, is that really is that really true? That dynamics internally at the uh, at the job. Well, we know about it
2: because there was a a leak that. Uh, well, actually, there's been several in which um, the employees of the New York Times have come forward to say what's going on. Uh, A few years ago, the Times thought it would win a lot of uh, uh, politically correct points by staffing up with radicalized people, Uh, but they apparently hit the tipping point where most of their staff were woke, and the uh, editors had to live in fear of being denounced as being insufficiently progressive in their
1: politics.
2: So uh, that's the dynamic of it now. I do think that uh, the newsroom is... uh, Uh, very radicalized, Mm -hmm. and it has been showing its oats When uh, Senator Cotton published an op-ed in the uh, Times calling for the use of uh, the uh, National Guard to control the cities that were being destroyed by rioting, uh, the newsroom folks rebelled and managed to get the editor who had green-lighted that story, or that op-ed, fired.
0: Now, the irony uh, that the Capitol wasn't protected by the National Guard until it was too late.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Think about that.
0: I mean, you got to be very—the liberals have to be uh, uh, argued with based on these points that, hey, be careful what you wish for. You guys are politically bipolar, and everything you suggested so far has blown up in our country's face.
1: The Capitol staff uh, was—police was just not prepared for doing their job.
0: I don't think they were capable of what was coming, but yep. they had to know it was coming because of all the other issues that have yep. uh, you know throughout so the year.
1: Senator Cotton had a good point, yes. but but the, the you're right. The staff, it's the young people. I guess they they uh, grew up reading uh, Howard Zinn's book, and it's amazing. The Wall Street Journal, there were 380 uh, staffers who wrote a letter complaining uh, about their editorial board. Uh, so it's it's happening everywhere, and I'm, I'm sure it's happening in corporate America gen- as well. A
0: gentleman, I'm, I'm sure you both are are sophisticated intellectuals, and I'm just a layman. You know, I'm mm-hmm. like you know schoolhouse for dummies here. But UNESCO, who was involved in the early formations of the IB program, the International Bachelorette mm-hmm. program, it's not known fact that when the United Nations pleaded the United States to allow international bachelorette to be a legitimate curriculum as kind of like a sophisticated mm-hmm. alternative in public school yep. that there was marxism written all over the handbooks and they were trying to create a global citizen not an american citizen and we should have never yep. allow that's that a
1: big part of it
0: big part of it and uh, it was a curriculum based on the declaration uh of human rights, not the U.S. Right. Constitution. I've
1: had that happen here, where I have saw the u- u- human rights instead of the Constitution. Yes, yeah. and
0: and you can't do it's that. It's ridiculous. You I agree. You can't do that. It, it hurt our country bad, because three generations have gone through the International Bachelorette Program, and it's— Baccalaureate, l- yeah. The baccalaureate, sorry. Yep. Uh, yeah, Bachelorette. Bachelorette's not, another not story. A, not <laughs> the, that's another story altogether. But you can see how these intellectuals— uh, can lead these terrible movements like Antifa and Black Lives yep. Matter. I wish I could find the proof that some of these leaders of these organizations, this dark money is gotten somehow by some freakazoid kid who was educated in yeah, this type but it's, of curriculum. But it's not
1: just the staff, because his second point is the social justice agenda of the times management itself. But I gotta tell you, I'm a law, I've am been a corporate lawyer all, year, all my life and uh, oh, oh, now 40 years coming up this year. And it's not just uh, the Times management; it's corporate America. Who own the Times? Well, everybody, every all sorts of corporate. They're paying. They're yeah, paying um, money to I mean. BLM. They're they having.
0: They own the Washington Post. They're
1: having struggle sessions. It's not just the Times or the Post. It's all sorts of corporations. What do you What do you make of that? Have you seen that in, in from your perspective as a scholar? Uh, of course,
2: I have. We, it, it's quite clear that uh, the upper echelons of corporate America have turned. Hard left, But uh, the explanation for this, I'm going to sound uh, a bit self-interested here, but I think this is true, that these people are all graduates of the nation's uh, best colleges and universities, right. Ivy League places and good liberal arts colleges, where they have endured or uh, maybe not endured, actually enjoyed um, being indoctrinated in the pieties of the left and also have been denied any real access to ideas outside the uh, progressive left. So both by commission and omission, mm-hmm. they are ignorant. Now,
1: they may be very good at running their corporation. They well, they collecting endowment finances. money.
0: Well, <laughs> That's no, all they're good no, at. No, no, but
1: even businesses are like that. Well, well let, uh, let me tell you, though, I think it may be starting to backfire because, for example, the NFL is uh, facing a loss of, uh, of revenue, of viewership. So I'm not sure that uh, woke, there's a saying that I use, get, uh, get woke, go broke. Okay, so, but see, that's a word. May work. not work.
0: That, that woke word, I've heard you both use it today. How does that get into our system of lexicon and di- a dialogue when it's from the Urban Dictionary? It's slang. It
1: went to the universities, and these top executives went to college and business school and law school, and that's what they bring and, into the job.
0: But I mean, the word itself—how does it get mainstream like that? Because I have a word myself well, that I put in the Urban no, Dictionary, no. and it's not that popular. That is—that
1: is, that is where, where they learn. They're indoctrinated, as Peter said. They're indoctrinated at the best colleges and business schools and law schools, and when they go to work and they're you know good business people, lawyers, they are totally woke.
0: Now, your book, uh, Peter, is being marketed to uh, other intellectuals like yourself. Or do you want it in the classroom no, as a supplemental?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Well,
2: my book is meant for the general public, and if I had an ideal audience, I would say I, I would like it to be read by the parents of school-aged children, uh, who so are me. The people that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, exactly. I'll, I'll uh, leave it with It's, you. it's not written for uh, fellow academics, although mm-hmm. you know, they can certainly read it too. But. The, the audience that needs to be shaken up are, are the people whose own children are being subjected to the 1619 curriculum. But now, here's an, an argument that I've been making a lot lately, which is that um, parents can do an awful lot to counteract bad education in the schools by talking to their children and talking through the points of American history that the children deserve to know. The difficulty is that, that the parents many don't know parents themselves. themselves <laughs> right. grew up in this system and yeah. they don't know that history. Yes. So your first duty as a parent is to become informed about the history of this country yep.
0: in perspective and,
1: yeah. and context. But my my wife pointed out that this year has been a bad year for uh, public schooling because they're they're closed, and so there's been more homeschooling. So really, you might want to get the This book into the hands of the homeschoolers.
2: I exactly do. One of my board members has been urging that from the beginning. Uh, There's a natural market for this book among homeschoolers, because it's not only debunking a bad history, it's trying to bring into focus a a much better, important history that uh, has been suppressed. Well, to some
0: degree, the homeschooling and... Uh, the other types of online teaching is also showing itself to be uh, not appealing to the mass audience because kids are just not doing well in well, school. Well,
1: yeah, online teaching has not been as effective. as My daughter's as in, in her
0: first year of college. I, I, you know, it was an error of her to register for these particular courses, chemistry and biology. But she did poorly in them. She was a, a an A student in high school, and she got two Fs already because she can't pass chemistry and biology online on, on, yeah. on Zoom. No one to ask a question to you. I mean, you can't reply to anybody. She went down to the science department on the campus. The doors are, clocked, are locked. I mean, this is a major heist. Of I'm
1: surprised ed- anybody's paying tuition to I, go watch Zoom. I'm paying
0: tuition. I, not only did I yeah. pay it, but I had to use my tuition because mm-hmm. it was prepaid college. Right. So if I didn't use it, I would lose it. So uh, I'm really struggling with this harsh reality.
1: Yeah. Um, There's especially- a place for books and personal uh, learning. You'll know as a... Me- President of the National Association of Scholars is a place for you.
0: Yes. And uh, uh there's another issue that I ha- I have to inform you about that I- it's very important that people like you know this, but you all want parents to overcome bad schooling, but there is an opportunity for you all to embrace a law that's here in Florida that I'm asking to be amended and have it amended in your legislatures because mine has been blocking me since 2013.
1: New York State's not going to do anything. Yeah, Yeah.
0: And guess what? Everybody says, uh, my state's not going to do anything. Well, guess what? 40 years from now, your kid will be in a food line, and I'll be there with a cane serving, and it'll be really unfortunate, but there's a chance in a a website that I built back in 14 called the uh, Governing School Act. Google it, Mm -hmm. because you'll see how the law was written by... The chairman of the Elections Commission in Florida during the Hanging Chads, his name is George Cruz, Bustillo. he wrote the law um, uh, amended to appeal us, Yeah. to appeal to those well, parents you're looking for, well, Peter, to take I back would, the schools.
1: I would say the viruses could be good for your book, because people are breaking out of the public school monopoly, and you're going to fit right into this.
2: Well, I think the book has been doing well. That might be why. I don't good. know. I'm sorry. Um,
1: well, let, let me go look at the next point you make, which is, uh, in many respects, the 1619 project was a get-out-the-vote uh, project for the Democrat presidential and other candidates. Would you agree with that? Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, that's that's literally what I'm saying. Yeah.
1: That. Now you don't have to get out to vote. The vote will come to you. Stacey Abrams yeah. will come and bring you the vote and make sure you, you vote properly and, and then send it in.
2: Right, and even if you've uh, given up your mortal life, you can still vote. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, That's really great. Really, the end of voter suppression. The dead can now vote. Mm-hmm. Death will not suppress your vote.
0: Is is there any kind of basis to ban mail in voting? Is there any constitutional? Well, in, in Europe,
1: they got rid of it because they had the same problem.
0: Um, yeah, but how do you do it and, legally?
1: Well, you you just don't you don't uh,
0: permit it. You don't permit it, so yeah. you could just. And, and, in fact,
1: after the 2000 election, uh, Jimmy Carter and James Baker led a bipartisan commission, and one of their recommendations was to avoid mail-in balloting. But then
0: he goes so far as demanding a photo ID.
1: Well, that's another good point. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good point. All right, so that's that definitely this, this project is a get out the vote project. Uh, you also say that the New York Times turned to it after the failure of the Mueller investigation on Russia collusion. So it was really that partisan? Oh, oh, absolutely. If, if you were a
2: reader of the New York Times for two and a half years or so, it was uh, Putin, 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 right. Trump is the stooge of Putin every day right. and on the front page. Then the Mueller investigation, which was a, a sanctified crusade that couldn't possibly fail, failed. Right. And the Times held a summit in the summer of uh, uh, 2019 saying, well, what are we going to do next? We've got to find some way to bring down Trump. And they made a self-conscious pivot to we're going to tag him as a racist and Mm -hmm. we're going to play racism as the calling card for this election. Well, it happened that the 1619 Project was already in the works, but with that uh, pivot to race as their dominant theme, uh, it intensified the effort to make the 1619 project into their uh, flagship. And after that point, every single page of the New York Times for the next year and a half was about race. They, they have a, also a, uh, a weekly supplement called uh, Race Related, and it, it, this intensification of interest in all matters of racial resentment is the Times' mm-hmm. uh, so well, what about what, there's
0: there's something to say about these elections? If David Pluff the person who elected Barack Obama, flat out told us how he was going to get rid of Donald Trump, why didn't we, as a political party, confront what he was about to do years in advance? Why did we wait so long to complain about the obvious when it was, you know, Republican states that were bandoozled? you know, five? Swing states run by Republicans in majority were bandozled by administrative people that Ed calls the administrative state. Uh, David, in his book, David Plouffe, in a book, told you how he was going to do it. He he told you he was going to recruit a Stacey Abrams type. He mm-hmm. told you he was going to get ballot boxes.
1: Nobody believed him, I guess.
0: Uh why why is it that nobody paid attention that, to that's his why book?
1: Peter is writing this book so you'll see.
0: So you think Peter, you didn't have did you have Peter Fluff, uh, Fluff's book in mind or no? Uh, have you ever read his book or no?
1: I have not read
2: his book, but I know his argument. I also know quite a few conservatives who were perfectly aware that we were going into this election year with baked-in fraud, that uh, everything had been
1: done to facilitate—
0: Yeah, our president was screaming out from from the—he yeah, was screaming yep. out from the, uh, from the well, upper stand. Well, you, you
1: should know that I am uh, a member—I've been a poll watcher, for a Republican poll watcher, Every year since 2008, and I am a founder of the Republican Poll Watchers of Miami-Dade County. So I had an idea that we had to watch, and you'll notice no, no shenanigans in Florida.
0: Yes, uh, right. Florida w- went from the bad boy
1: amateur to the pro. No, we were very good. But what do you what do you say? You said the conservatives knew about this and didn't do anything? I think a lot of conservatives knew about it and attempted
2: to do something. But, you know, the COVID-19 hysteria exceeded... Uh, where politics straight on probably right. couldn't. They right. got an excuse for doing uh, remote voting and extra hours of voting and things like that. And then some states were special circumstances. Pennsylvania, yep. the legislature was Republican. They knew that the bamboozlement was taking place, but the governor is a Democrat and the uh, Supreme Court of Pennsylvania is yep. dominated by Democrats. So whenever the state Legislature, legislature, tried to act to set things straight. They got slapped down by the uh, attorney yep. general and then by uh, the high court. When this got appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Roberts, uh,
0: there he know, goes again, all the
2: favor of taking right. a dive. Right. He was just a, a completely yep. unwilling to lift a finger to uphold the rule of law.
1: Right. Who, well, ma-
0: who makes? Uh, please inform me because I don't know who makes the chief justice. the The court themselves? No.
1: Or? No, the president appoints the chief justice. No, but no, no,
0: no, yeah. no. When, when he appoints, uh,
1: he appoints the chief justice. In fact, the chief justice is the only justice. So why?
0: Did, why didn't Trump change Roberts as the chief justice?
1: He can't just change him. He's appointed for life for good behavior. Chief justice. Yes, all justices are the same. But the, well, the, Roberts is a Bush appointee who right.
2: has. A lot of the characteristics of uh, okay. Bush so you,
0: Bush when Bush. you become a Supreme Court justice, Roberts wasn't always a Chief Justice.
2: Yes, yes, he was. He was appointed initially as the Chief Justice.
0: Oh my God! And his age—he's so young. He could be there solid for another twenty years.
1: He yes, will easily. So well,
0: you can't remove the chief part. Of, you can once he's a Chief Justice, he's a
1: he's Chief, chief Justice. In fact, the Chief Justice is the only Justice named in the Constitution. That's why the number of Justices is up to the Congress.
0: Oh my God. That, so he determines the docket. He determines what the case is heard or not.
1: Well, before the the election, uh, they tried to do it, and he uh, Alito was very active, and he tried to get get uh, put a, a stop of what was going on in Pennsylvania. But what I'm really disappointed about is that after the election, when Texas brought that case, uh, Alito and Thomas were willing to hear it, but the three Trump appointments were not. Were not, and that was very disappointing.
0: And why do you think that, I would like to ask Peter this, why would you think that the new justices wouldn't tackle something so important? Because they they would be accused of partisanship or what?
2: Um, Well, I'll have to uh, sink to uh, rumor on this one. Uh, I don't think anybody actually knows, but the rumor is that Roberts uh, threatened them. That uh, basically, you know, they all are dependent on the good favor of the Chief Justice, and he was basically telling them uh, you're going to be in the doghouse with me if you don't go along with this. But you know, I don't know that for a fact. I've heard it now several times from people who might know, but uh, there's no witnesses well, to it.
1: So I, I would go further, and I would say, first of all, I think uh, you know, Alito and Thomas were willing to uh, to go against Robert, so I think yeah. that can be overnight. I think uh, part of it is that they were afraid the three justices, they're afraid of of all this violence. I mean, their homes, their kids are yeah, well, going to school. Occur-
0: the violence violence occurred. Anyway. Their
1: kids, you know, they could have, they could have, uh, their kids would have been ostracized or hurt in school. So well, that's, that's only only
0: it. place that one justice. No, with, no, no. They young- all
1: have kids. Have no, but that young Kavanaugh and oh, uh, right, Gorsuch. I forgot. I forgot Kavanaugh's They three, age. three justices, so their kids could be, their homes could be firebombed, their their lives could be made, uh, you know, uh, impossible. The only thing, the other thing is cancel culture. Almost the entire mm-hmm. legal profession is against this. In the last few days, uh, prominent conservative lawyers have been forced to leave large law firms. Uh, in well, you the also US-
0: have the case of Mark Levin where he tells you that there are Federalist papers that state, I think there was Madison Commons, stating that the courts never want to delve into political issues Well, there, like there's part
1: of that. That's part of it. But there's no excuse. To, the fraud because was the here. Because the
0: unconstitutionality of no. it was the reason why Ted but, Cruz and the gentleman from Missouri took on this issue, because what you're hearing in the press isn't actually true, that constitutionally, we, the Congress could not reverse... The electors, oh, they could, they, they could have. And the
1: court certainly could have taken the case and looked at the at the merit so of the, the capital, argument.
0: The uh, I, You know, the unconstitutionality of what occurred in those five states was reason for the legislatures to not send their electors to. Yeah, but to. the
1: legislatures and the state legislatures have been emasculated since 1913. I understand,
0: but why would people say— uh, that Trump knew that this could not happen. Knew that no, that,
1: no, no. These were all reasonable challenges. Don't pay attention to that.
0: So we should just ignore that. You agree with yeah. Ed uh, Peter? <laughs> Come on, let Peter say yes or no.
1: I'm sorry, I missed that. Oh no, yeah. no. Uh, he was just oh, saying oh, that's why. That's a good why, way of saying no. Thank you. Why, 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 why We can't figure out why, why the court ruled as it did. So no, maybe, and why
0: is the media and why are the politicians that are now opening their mouths? Accusing Trump of accusing Pence, uh, I know he didn't have the power to do it. It
1: was reasonable but, to do what, what was but done. it was
0: reasonable what Ted Cruz and uh, yeah. the gentleman from Missouri, Hawley, was yeah, Hawley was yeah. doing. And Absolutely, that's, that's misinforming the public again. Well, so anyway, that was. Don't all expect
1: fun. correct information from the mainstream media a, or the left.
0: Okay, do you have another question? Yeah, I have uh, one more this question. This interview is um, one final question, only three I guess, because
1: we're getting we're getting we're going over. Um, here's the question. Reparations. Does anybody really think that's a practical uh, remedy?
0: Oh, come on. Of course not. No, come on, Peter. What do you think? No way. Reparations. Well, well I don't think
2: reparations are even intended as a remedy. It's an, intended as a kind of shakedown.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, a bank robbery. It's, it's a adult. bank robbery.
2: <laughs> you know, it's not that uh, paying reparations will make racial resentment go away. The grievances will all still be there, even. Nicole Hannah-Jones, our 1619
0: author. Why am I going to pay? I didn't own slaves. Jeez.
2: No, you. Uh, uh,
1: uh, the, the reparations will be paid by the Democrats who owned the slaves. That's right. To the Republicans they... who freed the slaves.
0: Yes. Good I, point. Well, we're in
1: favor of that. Would, that would be nice. Okay, yeah.
0: that would be the ending comment. So thank you very much for calling here. Peter, Blake we've Radio. run
1: out of time, but thank you very much. This has been very productive. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank yeah, you. Yeah,
0: you make us look a lot better than we actually think we are.
1: Thank you, Peter. You've raised the intellectual level of our talk show. Thank you.
0: Well, this was WSQF 94.5, Blink Radio, Key Biscayne, Florida. We want to thank everybody for joining us today here on the Concrete Conservative. And Ed Vidal is still victorious in one way or another. Ed, would you like to say goodbye?
1: Thank you very much to all the listeners. And uh, this is a good example of how we try to bring some uh, intellectual heft to our talk show. Thank you very much.
0: And we're going to now go to the Yardbirds. I'm a man, 1965. Take care, my friends. And, of course, always stay free.